Hi, this is Ed Fitzpatrick. If you enjoy local politics as much as I do, be sure to join our friends at Rhode Island PBS for the show A Lively Experiment. Hosted by Jim Hummel, the weekly series features journalists, pundits, and politicians debating the stories and issues that matter most to us Rhode Islanders. Tune in to A Lively Experiment and be part of the conversation. Fridays at 7 p.m. on Rhode Island PBS and wherever you get your podcasts. From the Boston Globe, this is Rhode Island Report. I'm Alexa Gagas, in for Ed Fitzpatrick. Welcome back to the podcast where we bring you big conversations from our very small state. If you were paying attention during COVID, you've probably heard of Dr. Ajish Jha. Throughout the pandemic, Dr. Jha was interviewed on nearly every news network, and that was before President Biden appointed him as the White House's COVID czar. He left his post in June of this year to return as the dean of Brown University School of Public Health. Our conversation after a quick break. When you want to go beyond the headlines, let me recommend Rhode Island PBS Weekly. Rhode Island PBS Weekly is an award-winning news magazine broadcast that gives you the full story, powered by investigative journalism and narrative storytelling. New episodes of Rhode Island PBS Weekly drop Sundays at 7.30 p.m. on Rhode Island PBS. Watch past episodes at ripbs.org weekly. That's ripbs.org weekly. Welcome back. I'm here in the studio with Dr. Ajish Jha, the Dean of Brown University School of Public Health. Great to have you here today. Thanks for having me here. You just finished the job as the country's last White House COVID czar. Does this mean that the pandemic is over? Well, it certainly means the pandemic is in a much better place. Doesn't mean COVID is over. Doesn't mean that we're not going to deal with challenges moving forward, but we don't need a full-time coordinator out of the White House running this response. What was it like to actually work in the White House and be so close to the president? It was extraordinary. As you might imagine, huge honor, huge privilege, every day walking across the North Lawn of the White House, going through security, walking up towards the West Wing. Like just, it's almost out of a movie, right? So it's very, very amazing. Um, it's also a pretty intense place. Very fast paced, high stakes, but great team, uh, ability to move big stuff pretty quickly. So extraordinary experience. How does it feel to be back in New England now? It's great to be home. Like, look, this was an amazing experience. This is not a, in any way a critique of spending time in Washington, spending time at the White House. But my family was still here. And it is wonderful to, like, be back at home. It's wonderful to be back at Brown. I came in with a specific set of things that I wanted to accomplish, and I feel like we got there. And it was a good time to move on. Right. And maybe catch up on some sleep, possibly. Yeah, sleep. Catch <laughs> up on things I love in New, about New England. Absolutely. As a nation, though, are we prepared for the next pandemic? So we are better prepared. I mean, look, it's been fashionable among some people in public health to say, oh, we're even worse off than we were three and a half years ago. This is nonsense. That's not true. Uh, We've made real progress on improving our testing infrastructure, 
I remember our strategic national stockpile was basically empty when this pandemic began. It is now pretty full. We have lots of gloves and gowns and masks and tests and treatments and vaccines. We have proven that we can build vaccines and treatments very, very quickly. We've built a national wastewater surveillance system. We didn't have that three and a half years ago. We have made real improvements on indoor air quality. That's going to help with any respiratory pathogen. So we're in a better place. Are we where we where I'd like for us to be? No, that's still work ahead. What do you think the top three things are that we need to do right now to prepare for anything that could come down the road? Yeah, so one of the first things is we have got to come up with strategies for dealing with the information landscape that we are living in and the amount of bad information that spreads quickly and poisons that information landscape. We have seen that over and over again, and it has contributed to literally hundreds of thousands of Americans dying unnecessarily. That is a place where we've got to make pro- more progress. You know, this virus uh, was closely related to SARS-1, the original SARS. I think that gave us a leg up on building vaccines and treatments. The next pandemic may be from a virus that's not related to anything we know much about. So there's a lot of scientific work to be done to build platforms, to make sure that we are ready for a virus that is a surprise. And then, you know, we've got really good work done on testing and treatments, but there is more work to be done there as well. So certainly figuring out how to communicate more effectively with the, with the public, more scientific investments, but also are making sure our infrastructure is really up and ready to handle future pandemics. I'm glad you brought up the information aspect. I mean, you've been on every media outlet that I could possibly think of in the last couple of years. You're active on social media. What did public health professionals get right in the way that they communicated during COVID versus what they didn't do very well? Yeah, I think there is a lot that we got right, and there's clearly stuff that we as a community did not get right. The hard part here is two things happen in the middle of a pandemic. Obviously, pandemics are about, there's a novel pathogen, you don't know much about it. And so one reaction by some group of scientists is to say, hey, let's not discuss this until all the data's in. But that creates an information vacuum that a lot of bad actors or just people who are not all that experienced come in and fill that vacuum. So one of the things I think public health officials did not do as well as they needed to was address the information needs of the population. The second is sort of the counter is that some people felt like we've got to address and fill this information vacuum. And so we've got to go out there with a lot of certainty. And often people spoke with a lot more certainty than they had right? And then as we learn new things, it turned out some of those things were not quite right. What that means to me is that we have got to train public health officials, public health uh, professionals to communicate more often, to communicate more authentically, to acknowledge what we know and don't know, and really remind people that communication is not a one-time thing. It is a process of building a relationship for the long run with people. And that takes time, effort, and honesty and authenticity. Do you think that's possible with how politically divided our nation is at this point? I do think it's possible. I mean, look, my time in Washington actually in some ways reinforced for me that it is possible. And I'll I'll give you a couple of specific examples. I spent a lot of time up on the Hill talking to Republicans, talking to Democrats, probably more talking to Republicans than Democrats. Found lots and lots of common ground. Did we agree on everything? Of course not. Like that, that, We're not talking about broad consensus on every issue. But I found that behind closed doors, there is a lot of opportunity for finding common ground. So I think that's sort of point number one. Point number two is, you know, I spent a lot of time in the last three years going on media across the political spectrum. I was on MSNBC. I was on Newsmax. And 
again, I found that if you're having open, honest conversations, no, you're not going to always agree with the host. No, there are going to be times when the questions are going to be framed in a way that's eh, not super helpful. But the bottom line is that you can engage with people. And I just think it's really important for all of us to do this. Public health cannot become a partisan thing. That is bad for public health. It's bad for America. And that also means, again, we're going to be very frank about this, most public health professionals tend to be you know, left of center, doing a better job of reaching out to people across the political aisle, reaching out to people on the, on the conservative right, reaching out to people in communities that we don't generally connect with. We have got to do a better job of that, and that's on us. You know, when it comes to how public health has been politicized, how has that changed in your career so far? Yeah, I mean, on some hand level, you would argue that public health has always been political, and sure, that is true. I think it's not – in my mind, it's not the politicization as much as it is the partisanization, right, that has become this sort of d- deeply partisan thing, or at least it appears to be that way. That is more stark now than I think it was five years ago. Five years ago, majority of Americans couldn't even really tell you what public health was. That was our problem. I mean, I think a lot of us walked around in public health saying, like, we got to do a better job telling people what it is. Mm-hmm. Now we're at a point where, at least in some circles, public health has become a dirty word. And we have got to reclaim that and do a better job of connecting with people, helping them understand what public health is and what public health isn't. You know, the history of public health is a history not of mandates, not of coercion. When public health has gone down those roads, generally that has not worked out very well. The history of public health is making changes behind the scenes to allow people to live healthier, happier, better lives while preserving individual freedom, while preserving people's ability to make good choices. What about misinformation? What do we do about that? Yeah, you know, it's interesting. In some ways, I almost don't even use that term so much partly because I think it has come to mean so many different things to so many people. What I know is that we are in a very different information landscape than we used to be 20, 30, 40 years ago. There was a sense that there was information authorities, and whether it was the news anchors in the evening or the president or the head of the CDC, that there was one voice who could speak to the American people, and most people would listen to that and, and be swayed by that. We have a way more fractured information environment, right, where people get their information from lots and lots and lots of different sources. And that means that we have to communicate with people in lots and lots of different ways. And in this information landscape, there is a lot of bad information. And what do I mean by bad information? Things that are just factually not true, right? Yes, you've got to counter it, I think, with better information. And I've always believed the best way to fight bad information is by flooding the zone with good information. But you got to be preemptive about it. I think one of the things that we have found ourselves is we are often on the response side of things. And when you're trying to respond to bad information, it is so much harder than if you can preempt things. And last point on this is I think we've got to help people be better consumers of information. I think we've actually got to train people to figure out on their own, like how can you detect bad information when someone is giving it to you? That's really, really important. And I think we haven't spent enough time doing that. I feel like we need some media literacy classes in every high school yeah, <laughs> in America. I think, I think, well, we certainly have to do that within the public health community, but we have to do it for the general public. I think the general public is hungry for information, but they also want to get good information. Look, the cost of getting bad information is like your family members are going to get sick. You know, so it is not like a cost-free thing to say, well, if you just consume bad information, that's okay. Uh, Again, as I said, you know, hundreds of thousands of Americans have died because of bad information in this pandemic. So the cost of bad information is enormously high. 
And if we just have to help people connect those dots. Mm-hmm. And speaking of communication, the question on everyone's mind right now, do we need another booster this fall? So first of all, I think we're going to likely get a new updated vaccine. And based on everything I know, and we'll look at all the what the data are by the time it comes out, but I will almost surely get one. I, 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 here's the way I think about kind of where we are with vaccines and COVID. When I think about the fall, every fall I go get my flu vaccine. I never think, is this my 28th flu vaccine or 29th flu vaccine? It's just my annual flu vaccine. I think for most Americans, COVID shots are going to be a once a year Go get it in the fall. We know winter is when the biggest surge of COVID infections happen. And for now, that's probably a pretty good model. One caveat, my parents are in their 80s. For them, it's probably twice a year. It's a little less convenient. I think I wish it was once a year for them too. But, you know, the way I look at it is we have this deadly pandemic with a tough virus. If the most elderly, if the elderly and the most high-risk people have to get two shots a year, that's not that burdensome for most of us one shot a year. Again, let's look at the data and see where it is. But yeah, almost surely, yeah, I'm going to be getting one. I'm going to recommend that to every one of my family and friends. And I think it's not that big a deal to like go get your COVID and flu shot at the same time. Outside of COVID, where do you think the top vulnerabilities in America's public health space are right now? Yeah, well, we've talked about the importance of rebuilding trust and and the information issues. I think that permeates and, and kind of affects almost every public health issue. Obviously, we have huge public health challenges. And I will start off by just reminding us that after a century of progress on life expectancy, during the pandemic, we saw a decline in life expectancy, unprecedented. And while in other high-income countries that started recovering, It is not yet in the United States. We're still seeing ongoing declines. Now, life expectancy is a bit of a funny term because people are like, well, what does that actually mean for me? What it means is Americans are dying younger at almost every age, and this is a huge problem. Obviously, the causes are, I mean, respiratory infections, COVID, certainly one major contributor, but the opioid crisis, fentanyl specifically is a major cause. There's obviously the mental health crisis that has that existed before. So we have some very, very big issues to deal with. They're not all going to get dealt with in the healthcare system in front of a doctor. We really need public health strategies here. You came to Brown after serving as a dean of Harvard School of Public Health. You weren't here for too long before the president asked you to serve in his administration. But from what you've seen so far, can you compare the two states, Rhode Island and Massachusetts, and how they differ on public health strategies and policies? When you look at the both states, they both have huge advantages in the sense of deep commitment to public health, strong health systems, and uh, strong relationships between public health and health systems always can be strengthened and made better. And then I think just a lot of intellectual capital, Brown, Harvard, BU, other great universities that contribute a lot. So there's a lot of kind of similarities. I think Rhode Island has both some challenges and has some advantages. The population is poorer than the Massachusetts population. And so it sort of starts off with a few disadvantages, but also I think it has some massive advantages. It is a small state. It is contained. It's a much smaller population. It is a place where we can, I think, move the needle much more quickly than we can in many other places. And we saw that, by the way, in the vaccination campaigns where the vaccines became available initially. Initial days, Rhode Island was kind of lagging. And then under Governor McKee's leadership, you saw Rhode Island rise really quickly to the top of the nation in terms of vaccination. So it's a reminder that we can get big things done quickly here uh, in a way that's a little bit harder in Massachusetts. And again, I love Massachusetts. I still live in Massachusetts. (laughs) It's not a critique. These are two great states. 
I, I take them over. I don't know, let's not get into comparisons, but they're both great states. Mm-hmm. When it comes to the main things that Rhode Island needs to address when it comes to public health, what role do you see Brown School of Public Health really playing in all of it? It is both a big role now, and I hope it grows over time. And let me just explain why. I think you know, our motto is you learn public health by doing public health. I'm a big believer in that. Public health, yes, it's an academic field, but it's also a practice field. It's You actually learn public health by getting out into the community, engaging with people. That has always been the Brown School of Public Health motto. We have been building up our faculty of practitioners, people who are frontline public health experts, public health leaders, coming to Brown, teaching our students. And then we have started making a lot of investments in our work in Rhode Island. We launched something called the Rhode Island Scholars Program. Every year, five students tuition-free, lots of extra leadership training for people who are committed to improving the health of people of Rhode Island. I think Brown has obviously a deep relationship with Rhode Island, and my hope is that public health is a tip of the spear in terms of really building out that relationship and, and demonstrating to the people of Rhode Island we really care about our home and are committed to the health of the people here. What's your hope for the health of Rhode Island in the next 10 or 20 years? What's your wish list? There's a lot of good work to be done, and I'm excited about new leadership. So we have new leadership at Lifespan and Care New England, new leadership at the medical school, quasi-new leadership at the public health school. (laughs) But the point is, I think there's a lot of opportunity. What I would love to see is people from Massachusetts coming to Rhode Island for great health care. Right now, the flow is often in the other direction. I think that is very doable. I'd like Rhode Island to be seen as a model for delivering high-quality, efficient care. When you think about national policy, people often think about, like, what national things can we do? And I always remind people, most important national policies start as state policies. National health reform under Obama, President Obama, Obamacare, really was modeled after Massachusetts health reform. And so that was about insurance expansion. The next big thing is we've got to figure out how to do health care delivery better, better quality, lower cost. I think Rhode Island is actually poised to be the place that can demonstrate how to do that. And if it does it, it will become a a model for the nation. So that is a aspiration of mine. And I think it's an aspiration of many people here to be the place that everybody turns to and says, this is how you do healthcare delivery right. Dr. Jai, I think that's all the time that we have today. Thank you so much for joining us. It was my pleasure. Thanks for having me here, Alexa. Rhode Island Report is a production of the Boston Globe in collaboration with Rhode Island PBS. Today's episode was produced by Megan Hall, Carlos Munoz, and Scott Hellman. Audio mixing and mastering by Marissa Ewing of Hemlock Creek Productions. Our music is from APM. And if you like the podcast, do us a favor. Follow the show and leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. I'm Alexa Gagas. Ed will be back next week. to binge watch all your favorite PBS shows, you need Rhode Island PBS Passport, Masterpiece, Antiques Roadshow, Rhode Island PBS Weekly, and many more. Watch them all anytime and from any streaming device. Learn more about this member benefit at ripbs.org passport. That's ripbs.org passport.